This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hi guys and welcome back to your weekly Stoke City podcast every step along the way. This podcast as always is supported by our friends at the Stoke City fans from all around the world Facebook group and due to the very annoying international break we've got a very special podcast this week covering a roller coaster period in Stoke's history between the years of 1999 and 2006 also known as the Icelandic years. And as always we've been joined by the one and only Dan Buxton. How is things Dan you okay? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you, Michael. Good, good. Good to see you again. Um, but this week, uh, we've got a very special guest, uh, Liam Bullock, so the author of Twinned uh, with Reykjavik, The Icelandic Years. Uh, Liam, welcome to the podcast, mate. You are our first guest. How's things? You all right? Oh, great. I, I'm glad to be your first guest. Yeah, um, exciting period to talk about. And perhaps it's perhaps it's good that we're talking about it during the international break, since it was quite an international flair to the time and a lot of the time for us anyway. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, you've, you, we'll get into your book in a bit more uh, shortly, but I think one thing for me is we've got a hell of a lot to cover off. And um, I suppose more than anything else, I think th- between the kind of three of us, we've got a hell of a lot to unpack. And um, I think we've all pretty much lived through the Icelandic years, I'm pretty sure. Um, and, you know, there's obviously good and bad times. But um, for anyone um, who hasn't actually come across yourself before, Liam, uh, would you mind giving us a bit of an introduction to, you know, your, you, your background, obviously your book that you've got out as well and obviously where everyone would be able to obviously to get a copy as well if that's okay yeah absolutely no problem so yeah I'm a Stoke City fan of course I have been um, since I was born um, raised in Stoke in Fenton living out in Spain now so a bit tropical but um, still make pilgrimages over to to enjoy the rain and cold wet nights I was at the West Brom game on Friday um, but um, yeah for myself I'm a geologist which is why I'm usually wow moving around a bit yeah it's not the most common job but it's um certainly exciting one um and yeah during during like the last lockdown i was living uh, with my wife chris in barcelona and um with with very little to do because the restrictions were really quite um harsh here in spain um we played a lot of mario kart on the wii and i ended up writing um, a book um started looking into it and um, as I'm sure you guys know once you start looking into all the things that happen you realize there's a lot of content there and quite a story to be told so yeah um, I managed to get it published with Pitch Publishing it's available through links on their website or, or just on Amazon. 
Brilliant. And I'll put a link up the end of the uh, the show. I'll put it in the actual Twitter uh, feed as well for everyone, just in case they want to take a look at that. I mean, I was having a quick look myself, um, obviously, in preparation for this particular pod. Um, and even, you know, there's, there's a bit of a preview on the Amazon site as well. And I thought that was quite fascinating, even just to read the first few pages, mate. So um, it's on the uh, the group kind of Christmas list I've got with the family here. So uh, I'm sure someone will, uh, will get that me for Christmas. So, yeah. Thank you very much for the intro, Liam. Um, and just for anybody obviously new to the Stoke City or maybe, you know, just has forgotten uh, what those years were like, let me just give you a bit of a quick snapshot of six and a half years. And when I mean the word snapshot, it really is um, just a snippet of uh, all the controversy that kind of happened during that time. So during the six and a half years at Stoke, we managed to, well, we, we were managed by an Icelander who was let go after leading the club to promotion. A certain Welshman, who we all uh, love, I'm sure, uh, was sacked for, uh, in quote, failing to exploit the foreign market. We had a bonkers Dutchman who lasted a single season. Uh, There was more boardroom arguments than there are whales in the North Sea. A manager quit after 13 games to be an assistant manager at Sunderland, of all things. A brilliant Wembley Cup win over Bristol City. A wayward striker in Sammy Bangora. And Peter Coates and Pulis returned, to say the least. So that is the most, that's a really short version of six and a half years. And we're going to, we're obviously all going to break things down. Um, so, yeah, thank you for, for everyone who's joining us. And, and hopefully, you know, everyone will, will get something out of this. But, um, Liam, one thing I wanted just to pick up on. Uh, like I said, I had a quick look um, earlier on, and one of the comments I pulled out the first few pages, you said that if there was ever a time for a Netflix documentary, uh, then the Icelandic era would have been it. So um, I know we're going to get into it in a bit more detail, but how would you kind of describe those six and a half years in a, in a couple of sentences? <sighs> in a couple of sentences, I mean, well, it was it went from the sublime to the ridiculous, didn't it? You, you could look at um, however many seasons there were, and something happened every season, whether it was, you know, the club trying to get promoted and then failing, you know, spectacularly or, or, or dramatically at the end of the season or trying to fight off relegation, whether it was a time where we had the manager and the boardroom just at odds with each other. And it wasn't just one manager. It was it was two or three, maybe four, actually. There was players coming in and out that we'd never heard of. Um, some of them turned out to be fantastic. Some of them were just terrible. Um, players that just didn't turn up. <laughs> what can you say? It was it it, it wouldn't it wasn't an exaggeration to say that this if this was a Netflix documentary, you know, it could it could easily rival you know Sunderland till I die. I would say that just just absurd material. I'm sure I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in some of those boardroom meetings. Oh, yeah, some of the handbags that were going on. And I think Dan uh, picked up on a couple of them, which we'll, we'll get into. But um, so let's just kind of go pre-takeover at this point. So um, I guess starting at the beginning, I mean, Peter Coates obviously was the owner before the Icelandics turned up. I mean, obviously, as he, as we all know, Peter now is obviously a multi-billionaire. And obviously, Peter wasn't obviously rich back then. I remember he came out and said that, you know, Denise and, and Peter, his, his kids, were spat on coming out of the stadium from Stoke fans. I remember the 7-0 thrashing against Birmingham and all the fans, you know, getting on the pitch. And I think, I think it was Birmingham uh, trying to get into the, you know, the director's box and try and go for them. And Christ, you can't blame them for selling the club. But um, I mean, Dan, just for yourself, mate, I mean, what were your kind of memories kind of pre-Icelandic takeover? Do you have many? Well, well I think you, you pretty much hit the nail on the head there. Didn't you? I think we, we were much in need of a takeover at the time. 
um, the Coates, you know, Peter Coates had come in obviously with good intentions as as you know as ninety nine percent of people do taking on a football club, um, but possibly found he hadn't got the finances to do what he wanted to, um, and obviously the club was going backwards as well. It did, obviously we'd have got relegated. There was there was nothing. You know, there was no money. We we were heading for a very bleak future. I think before they came, before you know, obviously we had the the investment and the takeover happened. So I think we, we should. I think that sort of gets lost in history as well. Um, you know, there, there was nobody else coming in to take on the club at that time, and without them, and, and it's funny, ironically as well. I mean, it's sort of like we had the Icelandic connection before, and then we had like Todd Yorks and Larissa Gertz, and and that's probably you know signing those players is probably what's actually sort of you know brought this about in the, in the few, like down further down the line. And possibly, I'd say, probably save the club. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And I think again, another thing, Liam, that you you covered in, in your book. But uh, I mean, for obviously, for anyone who wasn't kind of aware around the whole takeover and and kind of how that was, I mean, can you give us a bit of an overview um, of kind of your take on how that came about? Because to my memory, I think didn't good John Thorison come over? And I think it was Sigurdsson that Dan's just mentioned. But didn't he come over? At, seam at the ground and then got wind that Coates was willing to sell up the club is, is that is that kind of how it went down yeah I mean you both done uh, touched on it as well and, and you're right as well Mick that basically you know you could go back to 1993 I guess when Lou Macari signed Toddy Orlickson in sort of a chain of events from there really Toddy Orlickson recommended Laris Sigurdsson to Macari obviously Laris was top class defender at our level he was an Icelandic international and yeah good John Thodarsson was the manager of Iceland at the time he'd come over and watch him play and it was around the time that we were we were going in that transition from the Victoria ground to the Britannia stadium um and and obviously that kind of led to the departure of Coates in a way because we moved stadiums and suddenly we couldn't afford decent players anymore so we were selling our best players like Mike Sheeran and so on um and I think Goodjun sniffed an opportunity there that the, um, the board wanted were looking for a way out and there was there was a chance to pick up a, a you know a relatively big club on the cheap um, they just moved into a new stadium the very confident Icelandic businessmen that they can they can take over the world and that's that was their own words from when I was speaking to some of the members of the media over there and they saw an opportunity to to take us take us on bring in some of their own players and, and build us back up again. So I think Lord Arson went home and built a consortium um, group of businessmen, uh, including Gunnar Gislarsson, who became the chairman, Magnus Christensen, who was sort of the the man in, he was sort of the Wizard of Oz, I guess, the, the man who was pulling all the strings from behind the curtain. There was a few others. And then there was this whole army of smaller backers as well, you know, from fisheries, from banking, from food producers. And they, they had the consortium called Stoke Holding. So they pried the club away from Coates and Humphreys. And they, they, Goodgen put himself in the in the main seat where, where Gary Megson was sat before him. And we were off to the races. I was going to say, because I know there was eight main stakeholders and there was about 300, 350 small kind of, as you said, you know, fishermen and various different uh, things. And I seem to remember that when they brought out the Coates family, they didn't actually completely buy them out did they i think we had about 25 30 percent of of ownership so enough to actually make a key decisions on the board but they didn't fully get rid of the coats family at that point 
Yeah, and he was able to retain his um, his voting right in the boardroom as well, which That's would it. obviously come in handy down the line for for his choice of manager when when the time came. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And I think there was there was a funny memory I remember coming up, and I, I found it again when I was doing research for the show. But um, at one point, uh, they actually called Port Vale, didn't they? Uh, or Port Vale called uh, the potential owners, new owners anyway, and asked them if they wanted to to buy Port Vale instead of Stoke. Um, I, I'm not sure how much of that's true or how much of that was just smoke and mirrors to get Stoke to sell. But um, yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. Imagine how different things would have been. There's, there's actually a few stories of um, possible takeovers and mergers that once you start looking into it, become more and more interesting. Yeah, the original one is that Bill Bell got sniff of the, the, the takeover at Stoke collapsing and, and called up himself to the Icelanders and sort of invited them down to Vale Park. Um, but um, that's, that's hearsay as far as I know, but you wouldn't put it past anyone at that point in time. And then a bit further down the line, there was these stories of the Stoke Holding taking over Vale and, you know, selling the ground and basically merging the two clubs. And there I was, that. yeah, that was when Valiant 2001 came to power, essentially. And it, it had almost been forced because we or we, the Icelanders were, were thought to be the the preferred choice of the administrators at the time to take over Port Vale. Um, and um, it kind of forced the fans into action. And yeah, imagine how different things could have been. Like like Dan said earlier, nobody else was going to step up and and take over the club at the, in 1999. So who knows what could have happened if the, things had gone a different way. And to think, mate, they got it for three and a half million quid. I mean, that that's not even... I, I mind you, we've got a number of players who we've overspent on over the years, but when, you know, it's ridiculous how many times uh, that is in terms of Kevin Vimmer alone. I mean, <laughs> blimey, uh, that's a different conversation, isn't it? But how can you buy a, foot, a football club of Stoke stature? Let's be honest, I know we were having a bad time, but still, good plenty of history behind for three and a half million quid, which is crazy. But um, you mentioned one thing, both of you then, uh, obviously... Uh, Thordeson or Thordeson, I'm not sure how everyone seems to pronounce it a different way, but uh, obviously, you know, Gudjan, obviously was for me, was a really good manager, and um, I remembered him being relatively successful, successful overall, and I was actually looking back at our kind of top four or five key um, kind of managers over the years, and I'll be, I must admit, I'll be very honest in terms of I was very surprised um, by things like win ratios and stuff like that. So um, I'm going to throw these out there and I'm going to get you guys to, to both give your opinions and I'll start with you, Dan, after these stats. But um, so, <clears throat> excuse me, in reverse order, uh, the most successful win ratio uh, was, believe it or not, Warrington between the uh, years of 1960 and 1977. So he had a win ratio of 34.7%. Uh, we then next go uh, only slightly to Mark Hughes between obviously 2013 and 2018 with a 35.5% uh, kind of win ratio. Uh, Pulis it comes in in third place with 35.8% uh, win ratio, um, a staggering 165 losses for Pulis over that time. Wow. Um, and then uh, literally they're almost neck and neck, but uh, Thordeson and Makari both sharing 50% plus win ratios, which when you look at the stats kind of side by side, so let me just throw some key ones out. So Thorson uh, had 154 games, won 77, drew 39 and lost 38. And Makari was very close behind. So 
138 played, 69 wins, 38 draws, and 31 losses. That's almost as close as you can possibly get for a, an equal ratio. But, I mean, I seem, again, Makari's probably slightly before my time, but I seem to remember that Thordeson was, was much better than Makari, but clearly um, there's not much in it. So, yeah, Dan, what, what's your take on that? Maybe any particular surprises there from those stats? Yeah, I mean, I remember good. I remember we scored a lot of goals with Good John, and you know we won a lot of games. We were consistently in the playoffs, weren't we? Every single season he was there. Um, what I will say, obviously, with Macari though, was obviously Macari won that division, and then he had you know at least two seasons in the what is now the championship, mm-hmm. which obviously sort of skews. But yeah, I mean, he, he was a successful manager in in you know the division we were in. I think we, you know, he got us to the playoffs every year. We were probably unlucky on more than one occasion with certain things as key points throughout seasons that have, you know, stopped us from maybe challenging for automatic promotion or stopped us from winning them playoff ties when we got in there. Obviously, until we eventually did. Um, and then, unfortunately for him, he was he was unsapped twenty. But I, I think as well, you know, he he probably would have been a good manager. As as we went up the levels as well, I think he would have done a decent job, you know, in the second tier, uh, if he was just given the chance to. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, for me, he was sacked a bit soon. Would you probably agree with that, Liam? That would you have given Thoris some more time? Yeah, I would have done, and I think um, I think he had the players' respect as well, which you know obviously counts for a lot. Um, you know, speaking to Clive Clark, he was. And Chris Ulumo, they were both both surprised and saddened by the news. Um, he seemed to have found the, the formula that we needed to to win the big games by that point. Uh, he never found the formula to beat the veil, unfortunately, but he found eventually found, you know, the centre halves that we needed. Um, we we got through the the dark days of losing Graham Kavanagh and Peter Fawn to our you know ri- playoff rivals and sort of fan-fighting rivals, Cardiff City. Um, and I think he, he certainly would have... I think he, I think we would have made a decent start. I don't know whether we would have stayed up because in the end we stayed up through the, the work that Tony Pulis did to turn us into a championship team at the time by bringing in sort of the the British players. But the thing with, with Ford Arson was he, he signed a lot of foreign players, but he was also never shy of signing plenty of British players as well. And that... That came from the help he got from John Rudge. So I'm I'm sure that I think the problem was that by the end of that season where we got promoted, there was just no relationship between Thord Arson and and the Icelandic board. He'd only survived that year that we got promoted because it was actually um, Peter Coates and Phil Phil Rawlins who said, let's give him another season. Um, the Icelanders wanted him out. And, you know, who knows who would have come in to, to replace us back then. It's amazing, really, that he's gone out and got this consortium together. It's his idea, buy the club, come over, and then they've gone on your bike. So literally, like, they tried to do it within a couple of years. I think they always wanted instant success, though, didn't they? I mean, I think the thing is with, like, um, if you want to just compare, like, the Peter Coates now to to what they were, they were businessmen who were there just to try and make money, thinking they could make money off the club. I don't think they were ever really in it for the love of Stoke City. You know, they they saw it as a business, where as Peter Coates, I mean, yeah, he's... Of course, you know, he, he's a businessman, but he does it because I think it's almost like playing football manager to a certain extent for him. 
that's the way I look at this now. And obviously, when with the money he's got, it is a bit of a probably a, a play thing. But you know, he's he's obviously a big Stoke fan as well. I think that was the key differences for me. They never seemed to be keen avid Stoke fans or anything like that, were they? I think that that was probably the key difference. I think the the funny thing is, and I'm sort of skipping around a bit here, but they had the right manager eventually, and they got rid of him and brought in someone else and gave him the money to spend. Whereas we, if he'd have given Tony Pulis the money that he gave to Johan Boskamp, you know, maybe we would have got promoted sooner than we did. But as I say, I'm skipping around a bit, and I'm sure that's that's to come. <laughs> no, that's that's totally fine, mate. Like I say, yeah, we'll we'll definitely get into that. But no, you can skip around as much as you want. Um, I, I guess really just to kind of kick off, I mean, the, the early bit of thought is in, and we'll we'll kind of summarise here, I guess. But I mean, Wickham's that kind of first game, and I think I was again doing some research because I'll be hand on heart, guys. I don't remember this game. I I just don't. Uh, but obviously we won four nil away uh, to Wickham, which obviously is one hell of a way to obviously introduce yourself to to Stoke. And I think the the lasting kind of thought from that was there was 500 Stoke fans who actually went that game, uh, and I think they all started singing. Uh, it's just like watching Iceland um, at the end of it, which I think was completely uh, the opposite. To be honest, they weren't exactly great, and they never have been. But that's another story. Um, so do you, either of you guys remember that game? Because I honestly I've completely wiped that out of memory. I wasn't I wasn't there at that game, but I do remember the uh, I do remember us being Wickham four 0 it being their their first game, and I just remember thinking to myself, like, obviously you just, I mean I, I was quite young myself, I was only like eleven, uh, twelve years old at that point, and and you just thought like wow, you know these these they've come over, they've uh, they've had been taken over all this, you know, because it was foreign as well, so it's sort of even if it is Iceland, it's sort of different, isn't it? So it's a bit like you know different, sexy that kind of stuff. And all these, like I say, exotic names coming in, even, you know, um, you know son, 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 all over the place. And it was just because it was new. It was new. It was fresh. And to go, boom, there you go, 4-0. I think everyone thought, oh, wow, this is going to be a good, this is going to be an adventure. Let's get on board with this. Um, but, yeah, it uh, obviously took its time. But, yeah, it was a great introduction. It was certainly yeah. an adventure, mate. <laughs> Yeah, the thing, yeah, the thing as well is, so that was Todd Arson's first game, but somehow we already had two Icelanders in the squad, and you just think how quickly, how how did they manage to make that happen so quickly? You know, usually a new manager comes in, and more often than not, they just sort of defer to whoever was in caretaker charge of the previous game and say, okay, let's let's see what we've got. But we had um, Siggy Gislason who played. I think he got injured, and we had. Ina Danielson, who came and he came on and scored a wonderful goal, like lovely individual effort, and you know, seeing something like that, as Dan says, you know, we we hadn't seen anything quite so exciting in in a long time, and and it was a great introduction, and it kind of bought him some time as well because it didn't carry on like that for, for much longer. So it was just one of those really special nights, and Wickham weren't a great team, I guess, and they they weren't long in the football league. But I still think it was their biggest defeat at the time in the football league. So just just something something you something special was happening, wasn't it? And you know that season did turn out quite special for us. 
Yeah, absolutely. I don't think he had a bad season, really, did he, uh, Thorson? I don't think at all. Uh, but yeah, in terms of, you mentioned obviously a few players there, uh, really, Liam. So let's just run through a few of them because there was some, I mean, there's some, well, there's a lot of players they brought in over the years, but some real kind of standout ones. So um, obviously, Brynjar uh, Gunnarsson signed for a club record fee, which I think was 600k, I think we mentioned earlier, Dan. So I think around 600k. Um, so he played 30 games for us. And from what I can remember, um, I'm keen to see if you guys remember it like this, but I thought he was a bit of a, he was always a very solid midfielder. I think someone who was even linked to Reading at one point, you know, before he actually ended up signing for Reading a few seasons later. But I think, you know, he was he was missing for most of our promotion season, from what I remember. I think he got quite a, a bad injury. Um, but I, I swear, you know, that, that season prior to that, Reading was sniffing around. They were talking about signing him for, I think, 1.2, 1.5 million, which was a lot of money, really, for for Stoke back then. Um, but obviously, I think in the end, he had the injury. He never really made it back um, and kind of faded away before signing for Forest. So, um, I mean, do either one of you, I mean, Dan, probably to pick up with you first, mate. What, what's your memories of, of obviously Gunnison? To me, like I say, I was you know, 11, 12, I was starting when, when this sort of all happened and was taken over. It's when I was sort of starting to take notice about stuff off the pitch as well as on. So it was like really when my sort of my brain sort of really got into football rather than just going watching, you know, not really see, you, know, you watch what goes on. But like I say, I was at the age now where I was taking it all in and I could see then that to me, Gunnarsson, he was a class above. He could play centre-half, right-back, centre-midfield. He was a class above anything else in that division in them, you know, especially in like midfield and that. He just, he just looked so calm, assured on the ball. He had a great engine. You know, he, could, he had a good pass on him. It was just, he looked like, I mean, there, there was twice, there was quite, a, there was a few players who came in who individually looked like, they, you know, they were too good for what, obviously, like the third division, the third tier, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was definitely one of them. Yeah, and Liam, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say he was the best Icelandic player that we signed at that time, you know, comparable only to maybe a Lara Sigurdsson or a, a Toddy Orlikson, but obviously they came before the Icelandic takeover. Yeah, I think he originally did play centre-half for us, but he was, I think he was his best position was definitely central midfield. And I think one of the things that I'd forgotten that only sort of came back doing the research was how important he was in the season that we stayed up under Tony Pulis. Um, he scored some important goals and he was, he was, he was ever present. And, you know, this was a time where Tony Pulis was trying to put together his own team with loan players and free deals and things like this, but, but Gunnison didn't move from that. And he's, he's like you say, he's, he's probably one of the very few that came from, from Scandinavia and, and stuck around and ended up playing for two or three other clubs, you know, like Reading and Forest. I think he was at Watford as well, which, which is something that none of the others really managed in the way that he did. So he, he adapted very quickly to playing in English football and, and he, he just, he did, he had a bit of everything and he was, he was a good signing for us. Yeah, absolutely, man. I think another player that you know we've mentioned uh, on this podcast a number of times, and I think we briefly mentioned him earlier. So uh, he's not somebody who actually got signed um, by uh, Thorson, but um, I must admit, one of my favourite players of all time, Peter Thorne. Um, so Thorny obviously signed for Stoke in, in kind of June, July, kind of '97. Um, and uh, Brucey bonus points for who can tell me who actually signed him? Anyway. Who actually signed him? 
so I'm guessing, was it Chick Bates? Chick Bates, congratulations, you win the bonus prize of nothing. Um, so yeah, we, <laughs> we, uh, we paid about half a million quid for him um, at that particular point, which was, I think he was there generally as a Mike Sheeran replacement, because obviously yeah. Sheeran joined QPR, and I mean, Thorne, he's, he's always been, he was always a good player, bar one kind of okay season with 11 goals, which isn't much to sniff at, but you know, he scored 30 goals um, on that kind of season where we reached the playoffs, where we lost out to Gillingham, um, or, or as we know them, the referee. Uh, and during the, the season that Thorne scored four goals against Chesterfield as well, um, and he actually, I think, was, I think he was the first Stoke player actually to score four goals in a single match since John Ritchie in 1966. So um, he had a really good career, uh, Thorny. I think he scored 80 goals in 189 appearances. And um, I've mentioned this on this podcast before and also the uh, the YYY files uh, that I did last week. And um, my lasting memory of Thorne, and again, I'm, I'm really keen to see what you guys remember about him. But I think it was Wembley, obviously, uh, when we won. And uh, the, the moment where I was standing, like, literally right next to the steps where they all walk up to go and collect the uh, another trophy um, in the end, and I just remember Thorne walking up with the players, and me as a as a young kid just grabbing him as he as he was going up the stairs, and said, you know, Thorny, Thorny, can I give you my scarf? And I literally give him a scarf, put the scarf around his neck, and you know, within I think the, I think it was the next day, the p- p- papers in the actual uh, sorry, the pictures in the paper, you know, was there him and Cav lifting the trophy with my scarf around, and for me, that's the lasting memory and probably one of the main things that really got me hooked on Stoke at that point. And for something as simple as just taking a scarf off a, off a young kid at that point, um, you probably never realized just how much of an impact he had on, on, on the supporters and, you know, people of my age and uh, at that point. Um, but that was kind of my lasting memory of, of, of Thorny. And, and again, for me, probably the most prolific goal scorer we've had. And I don't think we've had one since, to be honest. Um, so Liam, I mean, what was your kind of main memories of, of Peter Thor, mate? So, so I'm, I'm thinking that the three of us probably all a similar generation of coming through watching Stoke. And when, you know, there's generations before us where their favourite player was Mark Steen or, you know, further back, you know, Greenoff, Hudson, Matthews. Well, for us, or for me at least, it was Peter Thorne because that was the first time that I was sort of understanding football and watching it regularly. And I loved him and he was my first favourite player. Uh, he signed around the time I started going regularly with my brother David. He was, you know, our ever-present goal scorer through the good times, through the bad. You know, obviously Wembley was the highlight for us with him. Um, you know, eventually I got my name, got his name on the back of my shirt, and two weeks later he moved to Cardiff, and you know I bawled my eyes out, and my mum complained to the shop and to the she wanted to speak to the chairman, and oh. It was, <laughs> You know, I was. It was probably the most heartbroken of being seeing a player leave right up until I don't know, you know, Arnautovic or somebody leaving like that because I couldn't see where the goals were coming without him. And you know, we kind of shared them around after he left. But um, he was my favourite player, and I, I still hold him in high regard today. And I think most Stoke fans do, even when he came back for Cardiff, who we hated at the time. He he always got a decent ovation. Not, uh, you know, compared to say Graham Kavanagh, who didn't. Well, I was going to say because that that's that's two different types of players. And Dan, I mean, obviously Cav went, everyone hated him for it, and you know Thorny obviously went, and everyone was disappointed, but they loved him that much. They they didn't really have 
too much of a negative thing to say, but um, I know Dan, you mentioned this on the podcast a few a few weeks ago, didn't you, about the the differences in how Carve and Thorn were perceived in the end? But um, I assume it's probably relatively positive memories from you as well. I'd expect. Yeah, look, same as uh, it's, uh, I used to love uh, Peter Thorn, really did. I mean, the first hero for me was like Mark Sheeran, but then obviously once, like I say, once. Uh, he left in there, and obviously Thorny came in, and it was just—I don't know. Like I say, you could you just you could just tell he was like a thoroughly nice bloke as well. I think, <laughs> and but he was just lethal in front of goal, wasn't it? And obviously we had people who could put crosses in, uh, especially in, like I say this year when you got people like Bjarni who could put a, you know a decent ball in and that, and he just loved—he just lapped it up. You know, the amount of headers you see him score and. They the kind of players, you know, especially as kids and stuff, that you just you just idolise, don't you? Because they're the ones putting the ball in it. They're the ones getting you up off your seat. And yeah, I, I absolutely adored Thorny, and um, yeah, I was gutted when he went. But like I say, like you touched on there, I like, got a good good ovation every time he came back with Cardiff. I remember him scoring a hat trick and his third goal in front of the booth and end for Cardiff, and he, he got like a standing ovation and people applauded him. And obviously he'd refuse celebrating stuff, which you know sometimes you see you know, people play players who don't don't celebrate against their old clubs, and they play like twenty games on loan for them four years ago, and you think you know what really? But he you know when players like that where you know he's been there for a few years, he was idolised by the fans. You can see that he maybe wasn't comfortable in celebrating you know for somebody else in front of us. And that, you know, that just shows again just what a top bloke he was, really. Yeah, just oozed class, didn't he? I think, uh, I think that was the the main thing. And um, I mean, we we actually got this audio the other week. So what I'll do, I'll just give you a quick uh, recap of the audio that we had from the Wembley goal. Uh, as you mentioned, good Johnson uh, going into Thorn to to get the goal. I love listening to this audio. So uh, we'll put that on now for you. So yeah, a nice bit of uh, nostalgia there. I'll never ever get tired of hearing that. But um, that kind of takes us on to um, a topic we actually mentioned very very briefly just, um, and that was the Gillingham game. Now it's very very vague for me still, um, really. But I, one thing I do remember, I remember a lot of people having a hell of a lot to say about it. A lot of very fuming um, people. Now the way that I remember it, and and Liam, you again from your research, you'll probably be able to correct me here if I'm wrong. But the way that I remember it was the uh, we had a, a lot of kind of injury time. Was it five or six minutes? Um, and I think that the ref was it was it Mike Dean? I think uh, he, he added on. Yeah, so he added on far too much injury time, and then he added on some more, and then they just got an equalised and, and found a um, kind of a, a a way of sorry of winning the game, and that was kind of the end of our of our playoff contention is that about right 
So basically, in the first leg at the Britannia Stadium, we, I mean, we battered them really. We 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 were two 0 up in about fifteen minutes, I think. They brought it back to two one, but then we got it back to three one. And yeah, Mike Dean was the ref. Um, I think there was even three or four minutes added on, where we were well over a minute past whatever it was. And Andy Hessenthaler just bashed one in from about 25 yards. It's unstoppable strike. So we still won the first leg 3-2. But because of the goal, the time that it came, the you know the, the, the role that the referee played in it, it felt like a defeat, even though we'd won. Um, and then we just sort of, I'd say we, we kind of capitulated down at Priestfield. But in truth, we, we gave it everything. And Rob Stiles was the referee down there. And he sent off uh, two of our players. He sent off, was it Clive Clark and, and Graham Kavanagh? Um, yeah, Cav was it? Wasn't he? Was he? Wasn't he punched? And then <laughs> Cav's pushed pushed him out of the way, and he and Cav's the one who got sent off or something stupid like that. I think he kind of came, he kind of came walking out of this skirmish with blood on his face and got red carded. And <laughs> I think Clarky showed a bit of dissent and got himself a yellow second yellow card. And even then, we managed. I remember, to take the, the, extra I remember the Clark second yellow. He, he he went like the ball went out for a throw in, and he picked it up for take it, and the liner gave it the other way. So he dropped it over mm. the back of his head, like you know, he's just dropped the ball behind him, and it hit the cutting of the pitch where the pitch had sort of dropped onto like you know, it drops onto like the astro, yeah, around the edge, and it hit the corner of the grass and bounced away. And he he took that as him throwing the ball away and gave him a second yellow card. Yeah, I remember straight away the fans the Gillingham fans sort of in that area, just straight up and pointing. And it, it was terrible. It was terrible decisions. And the, it, that was another game that I remember Brynjol Gunnarsson just like heroically playing in basically two different positions. And that was a season that ended and we we all sort of felt like we'd been robbed. We felt we were like really proud of the team. I remember the fans singing, we're proud of you at the end. And it, it felt like, everything conspired against us that night and and we were we were like done a terrible deed so that season that was the season we won the auto windscreens as well so it, it felt more like saddening and disappointing than perhaps the next season where we felt like the team and the manager kind of let us down more so than than rob styles essentially because who was rob styles and not atkinson because, I mean, a young Atkinson, you know, he, he loved to, to send us off for absolutely no reason at all, didn't he? Young, so. young Atkinson was taking notes in the stands, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too bloody right. Um, cool, though, lovely. And I think one thing that, um, well, before I move on to talking about a, uh, a heavy 8-0 defeat in the Cup, um, two players, again, that for me just epitomised um, the, the Icelandic era. And my dad even now mentions them. When we're talking about you know defence, Sergi Stanjuk and Peter Handyside. I mean, I don't know about you guys, right? But for me, that's one of the all-time partnerships at the back. Anyone who remembers them, sure, wouldn't really um, call me out too much to say that they're on, on par with the prime Shawcross and Hooth uh, combination. I mean, I, I just remember that, that nobody got past them. Obviously, promotion season just absolutely brilliant, and I think personally, Sergi was far, far too good for us. Uh, I know he was touted to go to the Premier League, and I'm pretty confident that he had a, I think, some personal bereavement or, or something um, back home. So in the end, he had to go back. But um, for me, he really was the the, the Ryan Shawcross of, of the modern era, if you like. So, um, how how well do you remember those two? 
Well, I remember him like you remember them. Stanuk came in as like a brick wall, wasn't he? he? Looked like even Drago from Rocky Four, and yeah, he had he had a bit of everything again. But he was just this giant centre half that I th- I also thought he could have gone right to the top and been a Premier League player. And he's another one that when Tony Pulis first came in, he was he said we need to get this guy under a long term contract. And you know, if anyone knows a centre half, it's it's Tony Pulis. Um, Peter Handyside was the captain and he was kind of like one of those defenders that went unnoticed a lot of the time because I think he was very he was very good positionally he never seemed to get caught out he was always in the right place um, so they, they had a really good like thing going together where one would just go about his business quietly while the other would sort of destroy people in his path and win you know run through brick walls and yeah they they kind of had that sort of short cross and hoof or um, you know, hopefully Harry Sutar and any of the centre halves we decide to put alongside him going forward. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And Dan, what was your kind of memories of Sergi, mate? And Handyside, obviously. Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, it was more Sergi than Handyside for me because obviously, like you say, Handyside just went a bit under the radar, didn't he? And he was more, like you say, um, like Sergi take all the plaudits kind of thing. And, but I just remember, like I say, Stanley, who was a bit, Ivan Drago, that's like a perfect, <laughs> perfect um, way to describe him. And it's like, you, you think of like the people who come after like Shawcross Hoof, they just latter days, Sergei Stanley for me. He was like the the original, like towering centre half for me to, watching Stoke. And like I say, there's, he definitely should have been playing at a higher level. How we managed to get him and, and keep him playing in that in that division, and then obviously keep us playing with us in the division above. He never went on to the Premier League. That's a real shame for him, really personally. Um, would have been nice to see if he could have got obviously got how we would have fared in there. Obviously, I probably wouldn't have been able to get there with Stoke unless we'd uh, rapidly improved if he'd have stayed. But it would have been uh, he was definitely good enough for me to play top flight football. Reminds me a bit of uh, Peter Hoekstra, who uh, should definitely have been playing at a higher level. And I think if it wasn't for his prior injuries, um, he he would definitely have been at a higher level than Stoke. But, um, I mean, I think we all remember Peter Hoekstra. It's, uh, again, I think only after him, you'd probably say Matty Etherington is probably the, the main kind of highlight down that left wing for me personally. But uh, Hoekstra was a hell of a player, wasn't he, Liam? Yeah, and I think... Um... That's that both Stanuk and Hooksha, you gotta give a lot of credit to John Rudge and working with with Gudjan Thordarson to to scour the globe for these, you know, either unknown quantities from 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 Belarus or these former Dutch internationals that are gonna willing to come and play in, in the third tier of English football. Yeah, Peter Hoekstra was just I've never seen players do what he could do with a ball at his feet you know he, he didn't have any pace so the fact that he was just able to take on players and and make space for himself and, and do wonderful things was just credit to him and um if again yeah if he could stay fit but then if he could stay fit there's probably no chance he would have been at a club like us at that time we were very lucky to have him and he yeah just just ask reading about him <laughs> i'll tell you all about it <laughs> Oh, the hat trick uh, with the absolutely pile driver from 
well, way out, wasn't it? I mean, everyone expects him to cross the ball, and he, he just somehow smashes it at 300 mile an hour off the top of the crossbar. I mean, you yeah, can't. I think, was, I think it was from somewhere near the petrol station in Blurton. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Was it, was it the set? I can't remember now. Was that the second goal? Because I seem to remember him um, just having a penalty and chipping it down the middle. I swear the, the penalty that was, was the hat trick. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. I mean, that there's some balls for that. Yeah. There's only one man on that pitch that was doing that, and that was Peter Hoogstra. I wonder if we can get him back just to take our penalties now. Do you think he'll do it? <laughs> I hope somebody better blinking, somebody better come back and take him anyway. Maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe Tyrese would, uh, would well, certainly can't do any worse than the guys right now. So, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And um, any other players that you, want to, you guys want to call out before I move on? Hey, I remember Baker Christensen, a goalkeeper around this time. And I swear, wasn't he like an accountant by trade who also was like a part-time goalkeeper but ended up playing like half a season for us in Division 2? Yeah, that's right. He was, um, and he like a lot of them, he was some kind of distant cousin or close cousin or something to, <laughs> to one of the, the main chairman people as well. So he came in and he was a character. He was, he'd like throw his arms up to the boom and end and beat his chest and... Um, you know, he was quite steady, but he was he was capable of the odd howler as well. And yeah, he was a he probably he was probably one of these like two hundred like small investors that were on board <laughs> as well. And um, I think he got arrested eventually and in prison for some kind of dodgy financial dealings. And you know, it's just another in a long line of tales for these these people that came and went for Stoke at that time. Yeah, I'd also like yeah, I'd throw in Bjarni Good Johnson for a special mention, the man Ford Arson's son. Because okay. he he was much maligned by some fans, you know. As we we tend to do that with some some of our players that the, the more creative wingers, let's say, or the ones that are perceived as being lazy or not tracking back and stuff. And I always I always liked Bjarni myself. He was always always first out to warm up, and he he was brilliant in both the the, the auto windscreens final and in the um, playoffs final and semi finals. And um, he overcame a lot of a lot of stick from 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 our own fans as well as the occasional um, away fans. You know, the Vale fans gave him a lot of stick when they came down here as well. And uh, he wasn't always the best. He was a, he was quite a limited player, I guess. But he always gave it all. And I think he was I think he was a good player for us as well. I think one guy we should probably mention who was probably one of the, the best signings we ever made was uh, Suleiman Alari. I thought his backside <laughs> was absolutely brilliant. Um, to be honest with you, and again, I think we all remember that that Cardiff game. And what I was, you know, a funny enough, actually, you should mention that. I don't know what you said, Liam, that triggered it, but I was it reminded me I actually watched the uh, the video of the second leg uh, only about I don't know two or three days ago, um, and just watching the audio, you got all the Cardiff fans screaming and making loads and great atmosphere and fairness to them, and then as soon as it bounces off his backside, it was pin drop. And then the murmurs of the Stoke fans in the away end, and it was they, they were just in complete and utter shock at what they just seen. Olare does nothing, and I think the poor guy didn't he uh, have a blood clot or something like that. I think, um, and he's I, I can't remember if he's still playing or afterwards, but I seem to remember him you know, having a blood clot and having to stop playing football. If I remember rightly, I'm really going back now, but I don't know if you can remember that, Liam. Yeah, he, he 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 was. A, I think he was another Ford Arson Rudge kind of joint effort. I think he he may have been on the bench once for us, or maybe made us like a five minute appearance from the bench like early on, and then he had this this massive scare that 
kind of was a bit unexplained at the time. They thought maybe he, he got this clock traveling back from international duty or something like that. And um, he didn't really go on to do much after that either at Stoke. Um, but there was just this one moment in time, wasn't there, where his arse was in the right place. So build the statue, build it outside the Britannia or the Brett 365. They, they did seem to like like a marquee sort of sign, didn't they? Because I know he was sort of being touted as this sort of three million pound striker that we got in on a free. I remember that. And then obviously before that, we the original one they sort of brought in was Arnold Largson sort of came in on a on a loan deal, didn't he, from Leicester? Oh yeah. Um, and I remember he sort of he scored the first goal on that Gillingham uh, playoff game. I swear it was only after, after about ten seconds. Yeah. He just rattled the one in the top corner. Um, and then obviously after him, there was like Ricky Daddison as well, who had all the build up, and he was this superstar striker that we'd signed on a free, and we'd done a great deal. And I remember him scoring with like his first touch again. Just a corner. Cup. Yeah, he sort of threw him on ninety third minutes in a, a cup tie against Barnsley, and he sort of run straight into the box, carried on his run, and met this corner, and was like, "Oh, one touch, one goal." But yeah, this this guy's firing us to promotion. <laughs> um, Never but... scored again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bloody hell, mate! You, 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 again, James O'Connor. I, we got we we are literally reeling these players off now, but. James O'Connor, what an amazing game against Cardiff, but what a trooper he was as well in centre midfield. That that guy was ne- he reminds me of a bunch of number of players we've had, but he was never really an amazingly flash player or did anything overly special. Um, he was just a real workhorse. I, I remember uh, in midfield. I guess you could say he's almost a bit like a Joe Allen. You know, he's just a solid midfielder most of the time. Yeah, and he was that 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 goal this. He, he scored well. The deflected goal, let's call it, that he scored at um, at Cardiff. We we didn't really understand why he was taking the free kick. He'd never really taken a free kick before. He'd never <laughs> certainly never scored one. And then he steps up and does that. He was brilliant that night, and he he always left it all on the pitch. He was he was sort of the prototype Tony Pulis midfielder before Tony Pulis had even arrived. And um, yeah, I think comparing him to someone like a Joe Allen is 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 very um, apt, I think. He, he he got about the pitch and, you know, he wasn't always the best player, but on his day, he was he, he, he was the difference for us in, in some games. He's a bag of energy. Yeah, absolutely, mate. We, we, again, we, we we could keep going on with these players. There's been some, some interesting ones, but let me refer back to something I mentioned, just a game that I'm sure, well, I know 28,000 Stoke fans certainly remember it at that point, but uh, Stoke City nil, Liverpool 8. Uh, so I would defeat in the cup. I mean, I remember the lead up to to the game with this guys, and I remember Liverpool were having an absolutely amazing season. I'm pretty sure was it uh, Gerard Houllier? I think was was in in charge of them then, and I think they were going on for the treble. They they were just having a particularly great season, and um, I think it was unheard of for Stoke to play the likes of Liverpool back then. I know we kind of take well took it for granted rather a few years ago, but um, it reminds me a little bit like um, Jones at Wembley though versus Man City. Thorne had an absolutely amazing chance to score with practically an open goal. I think he'd somehow broken the kind of defensive trap. Uh, the goalkeeper was off his line, and he all he had to do was slot it into an empty net and ends up hitting the bloody post. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember that quite well. But it makes you again. I refer back to the Jones and, and Thorne chances. If we score first in them games, I mean. Liverpool were ridiculously good at that point, but it could have changed so much. I mean, they had Fowler and I think it Owen and Carragher and Hippier and 
pesky. I mean, the the team that Liverpool had was crazy. Um, and I'm pretty sure, Liam, it was the game that uh, we had 9-0 on the scoreboard, which obviously they had to uh, quickly correct it, if I, if I remember rightly. Yeah, that's right. The scoreboard lost count. And I think everyone <laughs> everyone who had a camera back then was taking the opportunity to, to snap it. And um, it still gets... Still get some some airtime in the Sentinel these days as well. But yeah, like you say, Peter Thorne rounded the keeper, hit the post. You know, could have been 8-1 at the end of the day, couldn't it? it <laughs> no, I remember oh. it because I was at St Thomas More at the time. And, you know, you've got friends in school who are Liverpool fans. And I'm doing air quotations when I say fans. And I just did not want to go to school the next day. We'd, we'd lost to Nuneaton as well, like a, a week or two before that. So it was just... It was it was a weird time to be a Stoke fan and, and not not a very happy time. No, absolutely. And uh, Dan, what's your lasting memories of our thrashing in the cup, mate? I think it wasn't wasn't exactly respectable, but I think it was expected, wasn't it? Yeah, I remember um, I remember the thorn, the round say rounding the goalkeeper, and then sort of being, I think he sort of slipped into him, or he slipped as he hit it, or just before he did, and. Just sort of roll, hit the post, and straight back into the keeper's arms. But uh, yeah, I think at the time you think, oh, you know, if that had gone in, what could have been? But yeah, I think uh, they would have had a bit too much for us, regardless that night. It just seemed to. Uh, I think, like you say, we'd lost an uneaten. I think did we lose to Luton as well? Like just in between those two games, so it just seemed like we'd gone from we'd gone out the FA Cup to an on the team, we'd lost to a team we shouldn't we you know at the time we felt we shouldn't be losing to at home. And then they got so we, we were sort of a bit of a bit of a crisis period, if you like. <laughs> Not a good seven days. <laughs> no, no it wasn't. And if I remember rightly, I mean again guys, correct me on this this these little bits just will love about going down memory lane, loads of different things pop into your head. So um didn't wasn't this the season that we got Man United in a pre-season friendly and we beat them 3-1. I think we, I think, was it Chris Greenacre or Goodfellow uh, scored from like the halfway line and love kind of Bartes and it was a crazy night, but I remember Stoke fans celebrating that, like we'd just beaten them in the, you know, the bloody final of the cup. I mean, was it the same season? I think we beat no. Liverpool in the friendly that season. 1-0. I think we played Liverpool and beat them. I think Stefan Ford Arson might have scored um the season before right. we we beat we lost eight nil and then yeah the the free one that was that was when we were in the championship i feel, I feel like we'd just beaten derby three nil yeah because it was we had it was chris chris, chris, chris uh, iwalumo wasn't it yeah chris iwalumo Iwa 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 it was mark it was, Goodfellow uh, yeah it was the pre-season friendly that was played after the first game of the season that's right. Because you, Manchester United season hadn't kicked off at that point. <laughs> so crazy, isn't it? That was a yeah. full stadium. We we didn't get full stadiums at that point either, but uh, that was a full stadium. But I must admit, yeah, even as a kid, that was like that was one of the biggest games of you know for many many years back then. It was only a friendly, but in fairness to United, you know they did put a relatively strong team out. I mean, Diego Forlan obviously was a was a hot prospect at that point you know he'd come over with a, a big you know money tag and everything I think he was he was somebody they really really liked and obviously he stuck around but 
Um, Christ, yeah, what a game that was. Um, and kind of moving on to somebody that we would be absolutely ridiculous not to mention, um, Steve Quitterell, also known as Steve Cotterell. So it was actually 19 years ago this week, guys, which is absolutely ridiculous um, that uh, we he actually quit uh, the club. I think it was on the 10th of October, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, yeah, I, I remember being at school and I think everyone was really, really angry. I mean, I found it quite insulting how effectively he'd rather be an assistant manager at Sunderland than, than manage Stoke. And I remember him saying in the papers it was you know too good of an opportunity to turn down and... I mean, Christ Almighty! How, how, how good was Sunderland back then? Then, if, if being an assistant manager was was better than managing Stoke, but I, I know he said, you know, if the Stoke fans will understand. And um, if anyone remembers the game when he first came back, and I've been searching all over the internet for this bit of audio or video, but um, the reception he got when he came back, he is probably the most. I don't know. It was the he- most heated kind of reaction. He was escorted to the bench by police and stewards. Um, the normal empty away end, near, sorry, yeah, near the away end, near the tunnel, that was all full because the fans wanted just to get to Cottrell. I, I've never seen such a vicious and ferocious kind of reaction to a manager ever, and not not before and not since. Um, I don't know if you guys remember that, but oh, that was in an electric atmosphere. That was. It's it's quite apt, really, that in one of his few games that he actually he had, he gave Chris Commons his debut, didn't he? And brought him into the side. Mm. And obviously, he then, after leaving the club, came back with Nottingham Forest and had a similar reception with from us for him as well. Because I remember he had to uh, get subbed off, didn't he, in the first <laughs> half because he couldn't cope with the with the abuse that was being rained down on him. Bloody hell, Chris Commons, yeah. He was he was basically earmarked as the next big thing, wasn't he, Commons? Yeah. Where he, where he went after Stoke. I, I can't even remember what he did after Stoke and, and Forest, to be honest. Uh, to be fair, Celtic, he had quite a few years at Celtic. Did he? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't say a lot about Scottish football, does it? <laughs> I remember Steve Cottrell. Um, yeah, he went to Burnley eventually after it didn't work out for him or Howard Wilkinson at Sunderland. And I, I remember going to Turf Moor with my brother and at those days, I think it's still the same. Maybe not anymore, but the players and managers all came out in the tunnel that came out of the away end weirdly. And yeah, just 90 minutes of non-stop abuse. And I, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. I don't even think Graham Kavanagh got that much abuse. And We've had like games where we've been a bit like that, where we felt wronged by the referee or by someone like, you know, Danny Rose or whatever. That, but he was, the, there was no one we hated more than Steve Cottrell back then. And he must regret that decision. He came out later and said something about how he should have walked out after two days because of the situation with the board and the lack of control and all this. But, you know, he, he left to be an assistant manager and, Unless he was playing the long game and thinking he was going to replace Howard Wilkinson, then it, it was just a, a terrible move for him. He was like flavour of the month as well when he came to Stoke. He was the, you know, the original Eddie Howe kind of this guy's the future, and, and, and it just didn't work out, did it for him? Or maybe not even for Eddie Howe now, I guess. But no. um, it was it was a very very strange decision, and yeah, I remember being angry as well. <laughs> Didn't he get um, Cheltenham promoted like four times in six seasons before he then left to come to Stoke? That's right. He was, uh, I think Phil Rawlins picked him out from 
the, the candidates because I think by that time the Icelanders had sort of deferred to the English to to pick a manager to replace Lord Arson. And he was, yeah, he was the the Messiah of Wadden Road, I believe his nickname was. And um, he made a semi-decent start with Stoke. Like you said, he brought in Commons and Brian Wilson and he signed Chris Greenacre. But we weren't exactly pulling up trees when he left and we might have gone down with him, but um, we certainly went badly wrong after he left um, under Kevan and, and the first few games under Tony Poulis. It didn't didn't exactly go well. Well, it's funny you should mention that, to be honest, because I was, again, I was thinking back to the previous memories, and I remember when George Burley uh, was in the stands, obviously potentially looking to, to take over the club and um, to take over the management uh, role rather than the club. And uh, me and my dad were, were walking around to what was the old Sentinel stand, so past the, uh, well, again, the, the name's changed that, that much these days, but the John Smiths and where the reception is, I remember seeing Burley walk in there, and me and my dad were like, oh, amazing, you know, he's, he's really going to be taking over. He, he wouldn't be here if he wasn't, you know, coming, coming to have the job. And obviously, as, as we all know, that one kind of worked out. I mean, he decided not to do, um, not to take the, the role itself. And, uh, as we know, obviously it turned out that 24 hours later, uh, Pulis uh, pretty much is is walk, walking into the club. And it's weird how what feels almost like fate sometimes. I mean, to say that Quittrell left at the right at, at that particular point, Burley didn't want it. And then in the end, Tony Pulis is available and he's come in. And obviously, you know, the, the rest is kind of history in some respects. But it's strange how things conspire to somehow work out um how we would have done under george burley i'll never know because i seem to remember him having a, a pretty good um reputation before he sat in our stands from what i remember but sure he did yeah and either you i don't know if you either either remember it we are really yeah. going back a few years here aren't we? i think we just lost to watford hadn't we in like a night match but it seemed he was through the door like you say and he was up the agreements were in place and obviously he saw something that night that didn't tickle his fancy and he'd just come off a good spell of Ipswich, took them to the UEFA Cup. I think he ended up at Derby after that and, and we put free past him, so that was nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the other name that people have forgotten about after Cottrell left is that the job was offered to John Rudge and he didn't want to take it for obviously probably numerous reasons, but he, he obviously still felt like he couldn't take the Stoke City job after being at Port Vale for nine on 20 years, I think. Um, Tony Pulis came in and he said he didn't care if he was the 100th choice. He was just pleased as punch to be at a club like Stoke. And um, in his first meet the manager, he, he, he stressed what we needed to do, which was bring in some, bring in soldiers, essentially, bring in the men that know how to, keep teams up. He said we were too nice. He said that the dressing room was too nice. He needed some nasty players and he went out and, and he managed to get some money out of them because he went out and brought in anyone he could find that, that had done it before. Yeah, no, absolutely. Wasn't it at the same time he got Adiak in Bay, or am I thinking too far ahead? No, that's right. He came in on loan at, towards the end of the season and um, netted a few goals, including the the winner against Reading in the last game of the season. And I think his most important signing was Mark Crossley in goal. He just oh, the whole player. defense just went up when he came in. He, he had some brilliant games. He he knew how to manage games. He knew how to waste time without getting booked. He was he was a really, really good signing. And, you know, Tony Pulis, another thing that he could do as well as spot a centre-half, he could usually spot a goalkeeper as well. I think Crossley was, like, great for the dressing room as well. 
wasn't he? Is that kind of yeah. player you could sort of you know, come in and if especially if there's like nervous young heads or whatever in there, you'd sort of you know get rid of that nervous energy, that kind of player. Um, and obviously, I think as well, you got like Paul Warhurst came in on loan yeah. towards the end of that season. I think he is sort of contribution, sort of goes sort of unnoticed a bit. Some or looking back for a lot of people, yeah, that's right. And um, there was another one, I think his name was Mark Williams, and we played. We played yeah. Wolves away at Molyneux and it was sort of the, the most Tony Pulis five across the back midfield built of, you know, hard working, even like I think Greenacre might have been up front on his own defending from the front and we drew nil each and it was the most tedious, tiresome, boring <laughs> nil nil. And we were just ecstatic to have gone there and got a point and we were, you know, really happy about that. And <laughs> it was a bit of a sign of things to come, I guess. I was going to say, wasn't was it Paul Williams? Paul Williams came later. Williams was from Wimbledon, I think. What wasn't his wife like a model or something? Yeah, I remember. He was he was, yeah. just, he was punching above his weight, wasn't he? I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> wow, guys. Again, really good times. And I think we mentioned obviously, you know, Pulis there. And I'm going to take the opportunity. I, you know me again. Anyone who's listened to this, I mean, I'm interested to get your thoughts on this, Liam, because you're probably the only person I haven't actually asked. But for me. Pulis is still the best manager this club's ever had. Um, and I know he loved the club. He gave me personally, you know, some incredible memories. And I know a lot of Stoke fans might want to hit him over the head for the fact that we went on the binary results. So uh, I mentioned earlier, so between the uh, dates of the uh, 23rd of October 2004 to the 22nd of February 2005, uh, the only scoreline at the club was nil nil one nil. Uh, one nil the opposite way or one one. That was literally what eighteen games in a row. I think we discussed Dan. Um, so yeah, pretty horrendous season. So despite that, for me, he was always the best manager we've had. Uh, the positives always out, out kind of outclassed or outshone the the negatives. But um, Liam, what's your thoughts on Pulis, mate? It's, uh, it's a contentious subject for some people. Yeah, uh, not, no, I'm with you on this one. I mean, put the asterisk next to it that maybe Michael O'Neill will surpass him, hopefully. But um, for me, I agree. He he gave us, you know, moments that we just, you, you dream of going to Wembley and winning 5-0, don't you? And yeah. he gave us that. You dream of going to the Mestalla and watching Stoke play teams like Valencia, and he gave us that. And you know, the binary season was obviously something, something just, very strange. I remember John Akers telling me that he was backing less than two goals a game throughout that period. So he, he made a mint out of it. But um, there's there's the theory as well that he was digging his heels in a bit because he was unhappy with the board and that kind of was his protest way. Because I remember going to games like, I think we went to Wigan away and we won one nil. I think Gifton or Williams scored and we all came away thinking we've won that game, but it really doesn't feel like it. It felt like a slog and it, it was a very strange season. And the last game of that season, I think we went up to Sunderland and lost 1-0. They were already promoted and champions. And for some reason, we went 1-0 down and we went even more defensive. Like, we're going to settle for this 1-0 loss in this absolute nothing game. Um, and I think it was a bit of a Mexican standoff with the board and, and um, the board blinked first and, and out the door he went. But for yeah, me, I yeah, I'm with you. He, he was the best. I seem to remember like the end of that 18-game sequence of binary results. 
uh, was uh, I think we beat Leicester three two at home. I remember them score. I think we'd signed Kevin Harper in the week, so it was sort of like yeah, like you're saying there, he was sort of digging his heels in about his transfer budget and the players he got and wanting more money to spend. And he sort of got a bit to to bring Kevin Harper in, and we went in one three two. <laughs> it was like it was as if he'd gone well. See, see what happens if you did. He bring Kevin Jones in as well at the same time. Yes, yeah, he did. Yeah, because yeah, Kevin Jones up front and Harper. Uh, and I remember Leicester went one 0 up, and I turned to my mate and I went and I said to him, I said, "Well, might as well go home now." Whereas <laughs> <laughs> there's the goal, and. Um, about 10 minutes later, we'd scored twice off. I think Harper pulled a cornerback for Brammer and he stuck it in the top corner. And then I think he, he got another corner over. I don't know if it was one of the centre-halves who scored. Um, but yeah, I think Jones made his debut that day as well. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just funny how he was, like I say, all them results. He got a couple of signings and then he just flipped the switch. Yeah. And it, it was as if he'd gone... Yeah, well, now I'll let them play. <laughs> and I think around that time was when the board sort of hand-delivered him two Icelandic players that he's like, OK, you want players? Here's two that we've picked for you. I think one of them was Toddy Goodjohns and um, Thor Arson's other son. He's got three sons, Toddy, Joey and Bjarni. And uh, I can't even recall the other guy's name, but they didn't play tri- a minute. Triggy and Ziggy, <laughs> wasn't it? They were, they were referred to. <laughs> they didn't play a minute. <laughs> Bloody hell, guys! It's going back some way. That wow, yeah. But like I said, I, mean, I think it's. I'm glad that you agree on the Pulis thing. It's a shame for Pulis uh, that it ended the way it did. I think it, for what he did, it was a real shame. But um, I think one manager which really split kind of fans' opinions was the one and only Yuan Boskamp, um, whose entire mantra, from what I recall, was "If you score three, we'll score four. Um, he didn't know how to defend. He just knew how to try and score as many goals as he could. Um, and uh, Liam, and I'm sure you got a lot of kind of research again in the book for this one. But I seem to, to kind of you know again re- remember that there was a big fallout um, between him, Rudge, and was it Jan Kona? I can't remember who it was now. But either way, yeah, the, I think we were having a, a really bad game. Uh, their right back was basically tearing it down the flank without anyone really ever closing him down. And I think Rudge, from what I recall, literally lost his. Not lost his wick. He kept cool, but um, he basically ran down to the the bench, tried to tell somebody on the bench, I think, to to come make a decision, get get somebody to cover him. And from what I understand, Boskamp really didn't like it, and it all kind of kicked off against Coventry. And then effectively, there was an ultimatum to either you know Luke Rudge and Jan Konin, uh go or I go. Um, yeah. And I think at the end of the season, uh, Boskamp went anyway, from what I remember. So that was probably one of the most insane things I, I seem to remember um, in that six years. Yeah, and I think I think the problem with the you score three and we score four philosophy was that they scored three and we just didn't score. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Coventry away, another game I went with my brother where um, we won in the end. Jerry Taggart and um, Paul Gallagher scored. And yeah, the story goes that Rudgie, who who up to that point had a really good relationship with Boscamp, had helped him out a lot, adapting to English football, came down from from the director's box to pass a note saying, yeah, we need to switch the wingers, we're getting overrun on one side. So Boscamp was preoccupied on the touchline, so he, he spoke with Jan de Koning, who, rather than pass the information on to Boscamp, went straight to the touchline and, and relayed the information to the team, which... 
boss camp, obviously. So I think Ed DeHoy grassed him up, um, <laughs> grassed John Rudge up, and that that basically meant it it felt to boss camp like he'd been undermined, that he'd lost the respect of his players if something like that's happening and it was a they go or I go. And at the time we as fans probably sided with boss camp because we were doing all right then. Things hadn't gone catastrophically wrong just yet. Um, you know, there was still a bit of weird feeling towards John Rudge after he, he, he'd not taken the job a couple of times when when we'd called for him and, you know, he'll always be John Roger Vale to some as well. Um, but it, things just went wrong after that. And um, I mean, it's a minor miracle that with Bangura disappearing for months on end as well, that we didn't get dragged into a relegation battle in a way. Um, and for Jan de Koning, who was Johan Boskamp's best friend, he was actually offered the job as manager. Um, it was, this is another one of those funny little details that Ida Goodjohnson's dad had recommended Jan de Koning to be the new Stoke manager to the board. Um, and Jan de Koning said, oh, let's give it to my friend Johan Boskamp um, instead, and I'll oh, be his God, assistant. Yeah. Um, so then, yeah, it ended up with de Koning and Rudge on gardening leave. Rudge, um, Boskamp was working with um, Noel Blake, I think it was, and, and someone else from the academy, and maybe Dan remembers, but... Um, it just all kind of the home form just was terrible. We were winning some decent away games. I remember winning at Luton and Brighton and Ipswich, but we were just losing home game after home game. And yeah, at the end of the season, he walked, and um, and so did the board eventually as well. Yeah, I, th- I think Boss Camp. He was sort of the board's sort of last roll of the dice, weren't they? Like, mm. like you said earlier on, they gave him a lot of money to spend. That they hadn't sort of given Pulis during his years there, and like I say, he went out. He brought in like Hopkins, uh, Bangora, and he, like, I think I think Gallagher. Like you say, I think Gallagher's the reason we were like sucked into a relegation battle. I remember him scoring quite a few quite a few times away from home, like when we were winning two one, um, and then then there was people like Junior, like Coptef. There was, there was quite a few players that we brought in that they sort of bankrolled. This, it was as if they were going like one last hurrah. Let's see if we can, you know, new manager, new squad, all or nothing, you know, shit or bust kind of thing. Mm. Bloody hell! Yeah, mate. Uh, I say Peter Koptev. I mean, <laughs> there was uh, was it was it Jan Kolar? Yeah, he's the one yeah. that that, that Martin said. If, Martin Kolar. If you like, um, if you liked Peter Hookstra, you're going to love this guy. You know, famous last words on a player. I was going to say he his first game in the pre-match warm-up. I remember him doing uh, kick-ups and he was hitting it as high as he could just so he could trap it. Proper, just trying to show off. And um, I, I must admit, I seem to remember him being a complete flop in the end. He wasn't even he wasn't fit to to you know to lace many boots of them players, but certainly not a Peter Hoekstra. I mean, he was it was not even close. And, and Gallagher, I mean, you mentioned Dan. I mean, he played for Preston for about 30 years um pretty sure I mean we must have had him really young because he's I think he's still playing now I mean that that's how long ago it was we must have had him at 18 19 I, I assume yeah um, he was 19 and I think he played I think he plays Sunday League now you know he plays for his local Sunday League side bloody hell yeah and Sammy Bank killing them in a bit <laughs> yeah, prob- probably, mate. He's, he he was class at that age, and I'm not surprised he played at the you know relatively. It wasn't ever really top level, but still at a senior level. And we mentioned obviously Sammy Bangora. I mean, 
how can we forget him? I mean, again, what was it? What was it six in seven, I think he scored for us and went away uh, international duty and, and never was seen again. I mean, if that, that guy, I mean, I, look, I looked at his um, his background not long ago and he, he effect, effectively disappeared. He played for some random clubs that no one's ever heard of, but that, that's got to be one of them people who he, he's got to sit back at, on his, the end of his career and go, Luke, I cocked that up there. What a waste of my career that was because he never did anything after that. No, yeah, we we turned down two and a half million pounds for him at one point as well, and it's it, it's beggar's belief, isn't it? Because yeah, he's another one. He had pace, power, finishing, heading. Um, yeah, he just disappeared for two and a half months, and when he came back, I, I'm not even sure if he ever came back or if it was someone else because he was a different player when he came back, and, and like you say, he never did anything after either. Is it a surprise that? They turned down two and a half million pounds, knowing that obviously they were sort of running out of funds. Yeah, they obviously yeah. thought he was worth more, or that he was going to fire us to the Premier League, didn't they? I bet they wish they were taking that money now. <laughs> well, well, then anyway. Um, and cool. So, just want to try and before we kind of start to to close things up. Um, so, just each of you, and I've not pre-planned this, so I'm going to put you on the spot here. So. Um, Liam, give me your uh, your best and your worst memory from the Icelandic era. Best memory, I'm going to go with the Auto Windscreen Shield final because it was my first experience of Wembley. It was my first experience of winning um, a trophy or, or a massive shield, as it was, I guess. Um, big day out, you know, Jester hats, faces paint, painted... Thorn and Kavanagh, it just it was just a defining moment for me as a young fan that cemented my love for Stoke City. In terms of defeats, there was there was a couple of defeats to Vale. Uh, one of them was actually in the it was then the LDV Vans the season after that we played the Vale in the Cup, and you know it was a night match. It had been moved to the Britannia because the Vale Park pitch was just a, a bog, and um, we lost that game to a golden goal. And Brian Orton just charged across the pitch towards the Vale fans, and all the bench followed him. And um, I, I actually remember hoofing a chair in front of me, and a big chunk of plastic just flew right off and right down to the front. And luckily, no one spotted it because I might have got a banning order. But again, just just knowing I had to go to school the next day with a couple of Vale fans who would have just been chomping at the bit to see me, and that was pretty grim. You see, I remember what you were on about though. But the Port Vale fans were ripping the seats out. I remember them; they were they were tearing them out and throwing them onto the the bottom of the stands and stuff. Like that. And they did that a couple of times when when they visited. And yeah, they did um, that when Nicky Cummins scored as well. I remember. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I remember my, I was with my dad and. Um, to be honest, that was one of the games where he kind of said to me, Luke, uh, you're not coming again uh, <laughs> against, against Port Vale um, because he was, you know, obviously the fights and it was really, you know, naughty 40 type times and all that nonsense to people who forgot to grow up a little bit, to be honest. But yeah, I remember all those times. Um, and uh, and Dan, I'm going to put you on the spot as well, mate. So your your best and worst memories from the Icelandic era, please. I think I probably would have, would have had the same best one as Liam in the, in the auto windscreen final, but obviously, um, as he's chosen that, I'll go with the Cardiff playoff win in the second leg. Obviously, it was like the third time we've been in the playoffs, third, third consecutive season. 
we'd lost the first leg. I knew Dion Burton had scored late on, sort of gave us a bit of hope. But we, you know, they got our two best players essentially now playing for them. We weren't expecting to do anything, and you know, watching it on a big screen back at the uh, back at the Britannia Stadium, uh, just and obviously like the Cardiff announcer as well. You know, if you please stay off the pitch at the final whistle. And all that going around for their fans, and just the manner in which we won it as well um, was just just amazing, really. And that, that that was a real high point. It actually went to like the final, um, which, funnily enough, was in Cardiff once as well at the Millennium Stadium. Yeah, and it just felt like, it, it felt like there wasn't even a match. It felt like oh, we'd already been promoted. Um, it would have been a real shock to the system if we hadn't won that game. Because I travelling down, he did like I say it felt like we'd already we'd already done job was done. We got we've won, we promoted. This is just turning up to sort of seal it kind of thing. As it was though, mate. I mean, in terms of that game, I mean, we uh, we won it quite easily in the end, didn't we? I mean, Bristol they, they they never really turned up um, really. Brentford, I think it was it was just one of them games where we we just cantered. And I seem to remember Dion Burton. Was it? Did did he kiss Chris Willumo when when he scored? If I remember yeah. rightly, something like that. Uh, Dion Burton was a cracking little player for us, though. He 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 scored plenty of goals, and uh, yeah, I remember, I remember very well. My dad stopped me going to that game again. And in fact, I need to have a word with my father. He, he cost me a lot of uh, a lot of <laughs> memories, but um, it was because we'd knocked Cardiff out. He was like I said, there was a lot of fighting between the two clubs and I think his thoughts were, Well, Luke, we've just knocked Cardiff out, we're gonna be playing in Cardiff. Um I'm not I don't wanna go and walk through a load of idiots and as it was, nothing ever happened. So um he's got a lot to answer for, my father has, but We broke the South Stand curse that day as well. We Oh yes. We Arson went in and brought someone in to paint the dressing room with a big fire dragon or something to break the curse. <laughs> <laughs> and there was this, there was a flyers and stuff going. At South Stand uh, jinx my arse with a picture of yeah. Jim Royal <laughs> from the Royal Family. <laughs> oh God, great times, great memories they were. Bloody yeah, hell. I think from a low point though, uh, there, was, there was a few other. There was a few. I think I'm gonna keep it playoff related. I'm actually gonna go for the Walsall playoff defeat. I think the Gillingham one was probably more frustrating. But at the same time, you had that feel of optimism, of hope that, yeah, yeah, the, the Icelanders, they'd only came in halfway through the season, given a full season next year. You know, we were all, we're still building, we'll come back stronger, better. Whereas the Walsall one, it did feel a bit like good John had lost the plot a bit in that second leg. <laughs> and then, I think, did you know, like James O'Connor at right, right wing back? And, <laughs> yeah, Thorne and, didn't like, play. Yeah, <laughs> I can't remember who played. Was it was he played, played, up he front played Daddison own? and Kavanagh up front? Yeah, it's it just seemed like, well, what is that? Because I think did Thorne get injured in the just before the end of the season, so we actually missed the playoffs. He, he came on though. He came on and scored. I think actually uh, <laughs> in that game, but I think um, Gavin Ward left his hands at home as well. So. Um, it was, it was capitulation yeah. that night. It, it really was, and yeah, I, I can. I'm with you on that. Wow, lovely, Dan. <laughs> thank you, uh, thank you for the the trip down memory lane, mate. Um, and yeah, I mean, again, just to kind of summarise, then. So thanks to to everyone who's obviously tuned in. 
Um, and as always, I mean, the, the real football, of course, is going to be back um, next week or well, or so. So we'll have a, a proper pod coming up um, as well. But uh, definitely just want to say, uh, Liam, thank you very much again for joining us, mate. And um, if uh, if this particular pod has obviously whet the appetite, just as a reminder, uh, Twinned with Reykjavik, the Icelandic years is available on Amazon. I'll chuck a link on the uh, the Twitter feed as well. So anyone who wants to buy it can take a look and uh, I'm sure make a, a nice Christmas present. So Liam, thanks very much for joining us, mate. It's been uh, really good speaking to you. Um, and Dan, uh, yeah, I'll see you, your ugly face next week, mate. And uh, fingers crossed we're on our way to three more points. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> Lovely. Cheers, Liam. Cheers, guys. Really enjoyed take care. it. Anytime. See you soon, mate. Bye-bye. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.